0: Thank you, Ben. If you will, take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation 14, and as you're finding your place there, I want to remind you of some things that are going to be happening here pretty soon, Uh, this coming Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, is going to be what we're calling a back-to-school bash for our teenagers, our student ministry, and so if you're a parent with with teenagers in our student ministry, we want to encourage you to... To make sure you're signed up and register for that. But I believe it starts at 6. We'll have dinner. There'll be some game time, some music, and the, a message uh, each and every one of those evenings. Steve Cashman will be with us leading that event. Steve was here leading worship just a couple of weeks ago. He'll be back those three days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then he's going to lead worship here on Sunday morning to kind of culminate this weekend for our students. And then uh, next Sunday evening, we're going to have our members meeting that we haven't had in six months. And so it's our normal members meeting for August. It's the, a big one where we'll vote on a new budget and several of those things. So I want to encourage you to be at that. I believe that's also at 6 p.m. next Sunday evening. Revelation chapter 14 this morning. I want to speak to this subject, the vindication of faith. You know, one of the greatest feelings in, in life, I believe, is this feeling, this, this idea, this, this experience of vindication. Now I'm not talking about vengeance or anything like that, but just the idea that that when you've lived for something, you've pursued something, and you find out on the backside that it was worth the effort, it was worth the suffering, it was worth the, the toil that it took to do it. So this is a feeling which comes really when you do realize that you've given yourself to something, and what you've given yourself to has not been in vain because of the body of work and the toil that it took to get there was worth it. it the, the results bear proof of success. You know, anyone who has accomplished a monumental task, anybody who's achieved something great in the face of criticism understands this feeling of vindication. That it was worth it. Truett Cathy probably is one of those type of people who could explain this if he were here today, could explain this feeling of vindication. Truett Cathy and his brother opened an Atlanta area diner in 1946. You probably know the story. Known as the Dwarf Diner, the Dwarf Grill. That diner would spin off into what we know of us today as Chick-fil-A in 1967. Chick-fil-A, or Truett Cathy's fast food chain, has become the highest same-store sales uh, company in the country. It's the largest and quick Largest and most successful quick service chicken restaurant in the country, as well. And so they outpace their competition in sales. They outpace their competition in volume every single year while only being open six out of seven days a week versus the seven days a week, like most chains. And so if we were to go back to those early years when, when Truett Cathy and his brother and the other executives were, were beginning to, to decide what they wanted Chick-fil-A to be, and Truett Cathy's sitting there, I can just imagine him, in, in a meeting room somewhere, and they're talking through their, what their business model's going to be, and he's like, you know what, I, I just want us to be closed on Sunday. And those executives and perhaps consultants that they brought in are sitting there saying, sir, you cannot do this and make a profit. You cannot do this and, and, and remain competitive with your with your competitors, with those who are against you. And yet, that's exactly what they did. Kathy and his family's commitment to uh, honoring this concept or this idea of only working six and being off one has been vindicated. You see, not only does Chick-fil-A do more business in six days than their competition does in seven, but the restaurant chain has created a system that gets more people in and out quicker than anyone else. You go to any other fast and this is not a a, a commercial for Chick-fil-A, though I do believe they'll serve it in heaven one day. Uh, A version that doesn't make you fat, a version that doesn't make you uh, a little uh, uptight about things like that, but they'll serve it in heaven. This is Christian chicken, right? So this is not a commercial, and yet it's a commercial. But you go to any other fast food. And you see that line, especially in these days, in age, this day and age, where there's no lobby for most of these restaurants, you see that line of cars all the way back out to the road, and you just keep driving, right? Not so in a Chick-fil-A. You know you get in that line, you're going to be through it in five minutes. And I don't understand how they do it. I know we got some Chick-fil-A people that, in our church that, that work there, so maybe they can they can teach us and show us, but it's probably some closely held secret that they don't ever allow to come out outside the doors of the restaurant. But somehow... They have created a company that makes more money, does more business, and gets you in and out with a great sense of service like no one else has been able to do. Truett Kathy, I believe, could tell us today stories of vindication. There's someone else that I, I believe could tell us something about the feeling of being vindicated, and that man is Noah. You know, we've been probably thinking a lot about Noah the last few days as we've thought about gathering. I think Steve Bradshaw made the joke, I heard, that that we're beginning to gather things in twos in the last few days. And so we've probably thought a lot about Noah uh, recently. But Noah, I believe, knows something about the feeling of vindication. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine the criticism he must have faced while building the ark? Biblical scholars and historians, maybe even scientists that study the Bible would tell us that Noah lived in a time of history that had no rain. The atmospheric conditions were different then prior to the great flood. Uh, The Bible tells us that he was roughly 500 years old when his three sons were born. Uh, The Bible also tells us that he was roughly 600 years old when he went into the ark, when the flood began to cover the earth. And so during that century of time, Noah, the Bible tells us, experienced an epiphany. This moment, this meeting with God, and God in that moment in Genesis chapter 6 gave him instructions to build an ark out of gopher wood. Now, he probably didn't know what an ark was, and God told him he needed to build this big boat, this big ark, because rain is coming. And Noah's probably asking the question, what is rain? Well, it's going to rain, water's going to fall from the sky, the, the, the earth under the, the water under the air is going to burst forth, it's going to flood. The earth, And yet he has no concept of that, but he believed God, he obeyed God, and he began to, in, to build, to construct the ark. Day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, Noah worked on this ark. He was probably a great spectacle in his culture. I could see people traveling from great distances to see and to hear what's happening there. To see the things that they've heard others talk about that there's this crazy guy who's building this huge ship out in the middle of the land because he says rain's coming, which we don't understand that and he says the flood's coming, which we don't really understand that and yet he's out there for centuries or for decades now building this big ship. They mocked. They resisted his preaching of righteousness. They laughed and made fun of his call for repentance and faith, all the way up till the time that the rain began to fall and the springs of the earth began to burst open. You see, the people laughed until the ark began to take, flight, to take float. In that moment, Noah's faith and his obedience was vindicated as it became reality. Noah could tell us something about vindication. We find a similar picture right here in Revelation chapter 14 where your finger is. The visions in this chapter are given to John in order to strengthen him as well as the church as they endure great suffering. Last week I shared a a statement with you that Robert Mounts makes about this, this chapter. He says visions of what will be strengthen the believer to endure the reality of what for the present must be. You see, they remind believers their faith will be vindicated in the end and call for, for, for perseverance. Let's read this chapter, and then I want to come back and share with you several things about vindication of our faith. Look what John says in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. For they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, verse 8, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus and i heard a voice from heaven saying write this Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then verse 14, I looked and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Chapter 14 falls in the middle of another interlude between judgments. If you've been paying attention, as we've walked through chapters 12, 13, and now 14, you've uh, you've picked up on an interlude. We've also seen them in previous chapters, right, between the seven uh, seals and the seven trumpets. So the seven trumpets, we know, have been blown, which unleashed natural, cosmic, and even demonic judgment upon the ungodly of the earth. Before the seven bowls of wrath will be poured out, which we're going to get to in chapter 16 in a few weeks, John here is shown visions of what is happening in the spiritual realm and who wins in the end. And So we see this idea of vindication. Thematically, in this interlude, there are two major sections. If we went back to chapters 12 and 13 we would see that they reveal the war of the false trinity against God and his people. You see the beast rising out of the sea, the beast rising up out of the earth. And prior to them, you see the dragon waging war on the child born to the woman, waging war on the woman, and raging war on her offspring, which is the church. Now in chapter 14, we see a description of the actions of God and his people in response to what's happening just before the outpouring of these bowls of wrath and the coming of the end, John is again assured that the consummation is in God's hand. Isn't it good to know sometimes, really all the time, that when you're in the fight, when you're in the midst of all of it, that what you're doing is worth it? That's what we're seeing here. John is being reminded, the church is being reminded, that the consummation, that everything they've into is in the hands of a sovereign God, and he will make good on his promise. So this chapter here consists of a series of somewhat disconnected short visions which collectively remind us as believers that our faith will be vindicated. In other words, that it's worth it. So I want us to look at this vindication of faith And there's six aspects that I want you to see this morning. The first aspect of vindication is that faith becomes sight. There's going to be a day when our faith becomes sight. If we look at verse 1, we see here that the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. We looked at this verse in detail last week. But the Lamb is standing with his people. You know, Paul reminded the church in Corinth that believers are to walk by faith rather than sight. We're not called as as followers of Jesus to to be able to see everything that we believe right before our eyes. No, we're called to believe, to have faith in the promise and what the Word of God said. In this life, what we do is we faith into Jesus and we faith into the promises that He's made. We look toward the consummation of all that He said, even though we cannot see it today with our eyes." We've never seen Jesus. We've never beheld Jesus. But we know he's true. We've experienced him. We've, if we're followers of Jesus, we've experienced the transformation. Though we've never seen him. But There's coming a day when our faith will give way to sight. There's a day, I mean, I, I share this many times when I'm doing... Funerals, especially at graveside, that there's a day coming when the believer who's being lowered into the ground, that that person's body will be resurrected and meet the Lord in the air. We believe that because God has said it. And so our faith will become sight one day. We will behold with our eyes the victory of Christ that we have believed on throughout our, life, our lifespan. This picture is what we discover right here in these verses in this chapter So John sees the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion. Who's standing with him? John sees the 144,000. The same 144,000, as I said last Sunday, that are pictured in Revelation 7. And so they represent the church. Primarily, they represent the church during the Great Tribulation standing with the Lord. But secondarily, they represent the people of God down through the ages who, like those during the Tribulation, faith in to the coming Messiah. And so they bear the mark of Christ and the Father on their foreheads, John sees. The work of Jesus on the cross and the shedding of his blood has brought them victory. And so they're standing on Mount Zion in victory with the Lamb of God. Faith becomes sight. Today we wonder if our faith in Christ at times is worth it. We do, right? There's moments in all of our lives where we just ask the question, is this worth it? Is it really worth it that I'm, that I'm pursuing the Lord? Is it really worth it that I'm trying to live a life of obedience? Is it really worth it that, that I call myself a Christian, that I try to live a Christian life, that I try to love like Christ loves? We wonder if it's worth it. We all have that question that runs through our minds at times, that crisis of faith that takes place. We may experience ridicule in this life from others who question our reasons for holding on to the gospel and striving to live righteously before God. You see it's not easy to be a follower of Jesus in any culture, in any age. Today in the culture in which we in which we live, we see that it's becoming more difficult. We see, we can see that it's becoming not so so um, mainstream and so there's persecution in places, there's ridicule in other places. You see that it's not always expedient to be committed to the gospel, but church, I want you to see this morning that it's worth it. It's coming a day when everything we have believed by faith will become sight before our eyes. The resurrected Jesus, whom we have faith into, will stand with us. He will be with us, and we will be with him. Our commitment to Christ will be vindicated as we behold the Lamb of God there on Mount Zion, us standing in victory with him. There's a second aspect to this vindication of faith, and that is faith brings joyful worship. If we were to look at verses two and three, we see here that John hears a voice thundering from heaven. Thundering from heaven, but it's gentle, it's soothing, it sounds like harpists playing music on their harps. This heavenly music is then blended with the singing of those around the throne of God. They're singing a new song, which personifies the highest worship in heaven. This is a song of redemption. This is a song that, that praises the, the gospel and, and the, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a song of redemption, celebrating what Jesus has done, being celebrated by the angelic host and those who've experienced the redemption of Jesus. John points out that only those who had experienced salvation in Christ on earth were able to sing the song. There will be no person during this period, during this moment, that's not a part of the the body of God, not in relationship with Jesus, who will be able to sing the song, much less want to sing the song. This is a song reserved for those who've experienced the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ. The wicked wicked will not be able to do so, and they will not want to do so. Anything like this. Today we sing of God's redemption. We sing this morning three songs that declare the redemption of Christ. How, t- how many times do we, when we sing songs, do we get excited about it? You know, many times I think about this. I'm a preacher. I'm not a worship pastor. I don't understand music. I love music, though. But I've asked myself the question many times, trying to figure it out in the way God's created. Why do we sing? Why as human beings do we have this natural desire to sing? It doesn't matter if it's Christ honoring songs. It doesn't matter. We are a creature that loves to sing. Why is that? I don't have time to answer the question. don't know if I could fully answer the question for you, other than to say that that's the way God's created us. Creation itself sings to the glory of God. You look outside, you go hang out when it's not raining like it's been the last few days, and the birds are singing. The creation itself sings to the glory of God. Why do we at times as believers not get just stoked about the gospel and how it's changed our lives? And so that when we come and we gather with the body of Christ and we have an opportunity to worship the Lord and to sing about the redemption that has supposedly changed us, why do we so much, so many times sit there with our hands underneath our backside with no joy in our heart? But I'm going to tell you this morning, that's not what we see that text here. Heaven is erupting because they are overwhelmed with the grace and the glory of a Savior who's done everything possible to bring sinful, rebellious, wicked humanity into a relationship with himself. Overwhelmed by that. Church, we need to get excited about this. There's coming a day. When we will stand with the Lord in this moment as the church, and we will lift our voices with the angelic host of heaven and with believers from all centuries and eras of life, and we will sing to the Lord and the glory of his name all because of the redemption we've experienced. So Today we sing of this redemption. We magnify his love and grace. We worship Jesus because of his death and his resurrection. It's a glorious thing. There's a third aspect to this vindication faith perseveres in purity. Faith perseveres in purity. John describes this 144,000 in verses 4 and 5 as, as those who have not defiled themselves. He describes them as being. Blameless. Now, as we read this, we see that they're virgins, they've never uh, given themselves over to this sexual immorality, they've never known another woman, that's the way they're described, and so how are we to understand this? Remember, this is apocalyptic language, there's lots of symbolism here, so I do not believe we need to understand this as describing some sort of special class of Christians. People who have practiced a life of chastity or who have never told a lie or any of those things. There's no such thing as a perfect person other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only human who's ever been sinless. And so that's not what John is describing here. What the Bible is commending to us is those who have not given themselves over to the immorality of the Antichrist. Why do we believe that? Why why should we interpret it this way? It's because the Bible commends marriage, right? The Bible never speaks of marriage in an evil way. The Bible never speaks of sexuality in an evil evil way other than when we take it outside the bounds for which God has placed it, the the, the parameters in which he's placed it. We talked just a few weeks ago when we looked at biblical sexuality, that that is something to be celebrated. That is something to be enjoyed. So that's not what John is describing here. No, these 144,000 virgins are undefiled in the sense that they refuse to participate not only in the immorality, but in the worldly pursuits of all kinds. In other words, they refuse to worship the beast and engage in the immorality surrounding his worship. Today, as Christians, we strive to walk in purity before God, we do so because he's holy. And he's called us to be holy. Leviticus 11 and 1 Peter 1 tell us this. We know that man is made in the image of God. We know that man is created to mirror the Lord in his creation, to image the holiness of God that he's charged us to steward. You know, one of the wonderful things, going back to my commercial of Chick-fil-A, they're going to pay me for this. They're not working on Sunday. I do work on Sunday. And so I'm going to give them a commercial. One of the things I do love about Chick-fil-A, one of the wonderful things about it, is how their employees represent their company. Now, there's always a a bad egg in every um, basket, but most of the time, they very well represent their company. They're trained to be respectful. They're trained to be polite. In fact, when I used to go into the lobby and and they would say, it's my pleasure when they bring the thing to the table, I was always waiting for that. It's like I wanted to play the devil's advocate and catch them not saying it. But it's never happened that I can think of that they haven't brought the thing to our table and says, and I say, thank you. They say, it's my pleasure. No other restaurant does that. You think that's not a big deal. I think it's a big deal. Because they're respectful, they're polite, they're selfless in the way they serve the customer. Why is it? It's because it's indicative of Truett Cathy and the way he's led his company. The Christian ethic that led his life. And so the employees of Chick-fil-A persevere in that ethic. It's probably not easy when a person's a jerk to say, it's my pleasure. I know when church members come, and sometimes church members are not the, the most Christ-like people in the world, and they show their backside, and, and I've got to do that as well. Like, my pleasure to serve you. If I could do anything, I'd like to do this, but I won't do that because the Lord doesn't want me to, at least today, right? And so th- they persevere in that. What do we do as followers of Jesus? We persevere in this ethic, the same ethic that our leader had because he's the one who's changed our lives. You see, Jesus, if you know Jesus today, he's changed your want to. He's changed your desires. You you once were living for things of this world. Now, for whatever reason, you can't explain it other than the gospel. You don't want those things anymore. You're pursuing him, and you're pursuing the things that honor him. You see, because of Christ, we no longer chase after other gods and idols. Do they get our our attention at times? Yes. But as a follower of Jesus, we will not neglect those things. We will walk away from those things and pursue the Lord. We don't live for the pleasures that this world offers. We don't live for self. We want to live lives that please that please and bring honor to Jesus. And this desire and commitment will be vindicated because we too will stand with him at the eschaton, the end time. And we will we will be rewarded, which brings us to a fourth aspect. Faith is rewarded. Verse 12 calls us as believers to endurance. Based on this promise of God's judgment, on those who warred against them, right? The, the war that's there, the persecution that's surrounding it, it's a call for endurance. Believers, however, are not just called to persevere. They are also assured of blessedness and response to their perseverance, verse 13. So call for endurance in verse 12. Then there's this idea of, hey, if while and when and because you're enduring, know that you're going to be blessed. Know that you're going to be rewarded. Know that the things that you do in this life will follow you into eternity. Over and over again in the Bible we read of individuals beliefs and actions being remembered and recorded, testifying if you will on their behalf. In fact, if we were to fast forward to Revelation 20 verse 12, we see that right there at the great white throne judgment that the books will be opened and the dead will be judged by what is written in the books. What we do in this life follows us into eternity. Now, as Christians, we know we're not redeemed because we're good people. We know we're not redeemed because we helped enough older ladies across the road or gave enough money to the church or whatever cause. That's not how we're redeemed. We're redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. But we will be rewarded as believers based upon what we do. And as those who are not in relationship with Jesus, who come to that moment in the judgment, you will be judged by what you did do in this life, namely what you didn't do with Christ as you rejected him. And so we see here in verse 13 this basic Roman and biblical principle of lex talionis. That is the law of retribution. Paul told the church at Galatia very similar words. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows that, he will also reap. So your, your actions will follow you. Your actions with and your actions toward Christ, they carry eternal Consequences leads us to a fifth aspect of this vindication of faith. That is, faith is vindicated. It's worth it. Move into verses eight through eleven, and then fourteen through twenty, and we see here visions of judgment, visions of reaping. The de- declaration of the angel there in verse eight stresses the absolute certainty of this coming destruction, as he declares, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon." the great judgment is coming upon this city and the city represents apostate man it's the civilization ruled by the antichrist and so this civilization will experience the wrath of God and this wrath of God is not going to be diluted notice what he says it's going to be full strength verse 10 no longer diluted up until this point this point as we've moved through the seals and now we've moved through the trumpets, we're about to get into the, the, the bowls of wrath. It's been somewhat diluted at this point. No longer will it be diluted. They're going to be reaped, thrown into the wine press, and the blood will run. Destruction will resemble that of Sodom and Gomorrah as it speaks of fire and sulfur and smoke. So the vision of destruction is further made clear in the visions of the Son of Man there in verses 14, 15, and 16. He's taking the sickle and reaping the harvest of the earth. And the other angel cutting the clusters of grapes from the vine with the sickle and throwing them into that winepress of the wrath of God. I believe the vision of the Son of Man most likely refers to the gathering of the elect from among the earth, while the vision of the angel taking the sickle and cutting the clusters from the vine speaks of those who are rebellious being cast into the judgment of God. There, the full strength of God's wrath will be expressed as the, as the grapes are crushed until the blood flows, as verse twenty says, as high as the horse's bridle, so five to six feet for hundred and eighty-four miles. Back then, that was the length of Syria. Faith is vindicated. In these visions, vindicated as God's people are gathered for reward, and the final gruesome judgment of God is executed on those who mistreated the people of God. The suffering endured by believers is worth it. That's what John is seeing here. That's what the church is seeing here. Is that everything you've been experiencing, and and the and 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 in the wrath of the Antichrist, the wrath of the dragon is being poured out unleashed upon the people of God and God is saying in the midst of all this it's worth it your faith is worth it the suffering endured by by believers is worth it the enemies of God will be crushed under the divine and exhaustive wrath of God and this brings us to a sixth and final aspect of this vindication faith is a choice it's a choice we go back to verse 6 and 7, we see the angel flying in a vision overhead proclaiming what John de- describes as the eternal gospel. He's connecting the judgment of God with the grace of God in this vision. We've seen this grace in the midst of judgment already in Revelation. If we were to go to Revelation 8.13, we saw there an eagle flying overhead Announcing the woes that were about to come, calling people, warning people what was happening. And the idea there, the underlying idea there was to call people to repentance and faith. We move into that in chapter 9 and we see that in the midst of the woes being unleashed, there is this reverberation of, all right, there's now two more woes left. There's one more woe left. Warning people of the judgment coming. Now we skip a little bit further. We go to chapter 11, and you've got the two witnesses standing, proclaiming, preaching the gospel, calling people to faith and repentance in the midst of judgment. So what we see in all of this, even in the end times, is God is calling people, offering them a choice to leave their sin and their rebellion and to find grace and forgiveness in Jesus, even as the storm of his wrath is bearing down. I believe what we're seeing here is another call for faith and repentance. Similar to the Lord's message in Mark 1, 14 and 15, that the kingdom of God is near. It's near, so it's, we need to repent and believe the good news. It's not yet too late. The judgment has not yet fully fallen. There's still time to repent. There's still time to believe the gospel. There's still time for God's mercy. Do you see in these words here the urgency of the Lord? How urgent are we in the church today? How urgent are we to preach the message like this, knowing that this will be the reality of those at the end? There's a strong sense of urgency in this angel's message. The gospel in itself is an urgent message. There is not always going to be time to hear and to believe. And that's why we share it. We share it urgently because the time is short. The judgment is coming. The wrath of God against sin is real. We must share it urgently. Your friends will not always be around. I had an aunt that just died, I believe, Friday evening. Pretty quick death. She has been sick for a number of months and things just compounded. and, and, And she went home on hospice, I believe, on Sunday or Monday and was with the Lord on Friday. My sister called me earlier this week and she was very just nervous and tense, was going to go over there and see her and just wanted to have that gospel conversation. Though I had been told by other family members that there, yes, back in February she had placed her faith in Jesus. But my sister went over there and had that conversation with her because she knew one thing, that her time was short. She wanted to have one more opportunity to share the gospel with this woman before she met Jesus face-to-face. We will all meet Jesus face to face. You go to the right or to the left after you meet him. Time is short, judgment is real. We share it urgently because everyone must decide on it. You see, there's no middle ground when it comes to the gospel. Oh, we want to ride the fence in in this area of life. We don't want to take a side at times, especially if if you've grown up in church, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. You want to ride the middle ground. You want to live in this world as much as you can and hop off that train onto the train that takes you to heaven as late as possible. But that's not the way it works. We share urgently because we have to decide. There's no concept of middle ground. You don't ride the proverbial fence in regards to the gospel. You see, not to choose is to choose. You're either with Christ or you are against him. No one's going to be able to stand before the Lord at the great white throne in Revelation 20 and say, You know what? I just never took a side in this area. Give me a pass. No, to not choose is to choose. Everyone is born with an endemic, an Adam-like nature, a fallen, sinful nature. And therefore, by nature, we're an enemy of God. It's the grace of God that opens our eyes to our rebellion. It's the grace of God that leads us to a place of faith and repentance. And that's a choice that we all must make. We have to take what we see in the gospel and believe it for ourselves. You don't ride grandma's coattails to heaven. There's no grandchildren in the gospel. My children have to come to faith in Jesus on their own. They don't ride mama and daddy's coattails. That's why we share the gospel with them. That's why we are diligent to try to disciple them the best we have. We know how. That's why they're in church. We want them to be saturated in a gospel type of world because they've got to make that choice for themselves. Faith is a choice. This morning we can praise God for his grace Because when a person responds in faith and repentance, that person, he or she, becomes a new creation, raised from death to life, transformed from an enemy, and made into a son or daughter of God. But faith is a choice. One day our choice will be vindicated. It will be proved. Today we may be ridiculed by friends and family and coworkers and, and a culture saying, you know what, you believe that old traditional junk. You believe that stuff about Jesus. He was just an ordinary guy. We, we may be ridiculed today, but there's coming a moment in the future. Whether we're alive when it happens or we are in a resurrected state, get to experience that. But there's coming a day when everything we've believed becomes sight and there is vindication. And we get to sit back and think, goodness gracious, thank you, Lord, for calling me to yourself. Thank you for giving me the ability to endure in this troubled life because it is worth it. Faith is a choice. This morning, if you're a Christian, there was a point in your life when you made a choice to follow Jesus. For me, that was April 24th, 1997. If you've ever made that decision in in your life, the Bible tells us that you're under the just condemnation of a holy God. You're in your sin. You bear it yourself. You need to believe the message of the gospel. What is the gospel? We talk about it in three parts. Most Sundays we talk about it as good news, bad news, best news. The good news is God loves you. He created you you have the ability to perfectly relate to him, right? You have perfect design. I mean, everything about you is built to be in relationship, to be a friend of God, to be a son or daughter of God. The bad news is that we're all sinners, like I just said. We're all separated. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And we have no ability to know God, no desire to know God. The best news is this, is that we in our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our disobedience, Romans 5, 8 tells us that God loved us while we are yet sinners right he died for us he paid the penalty on the cross so that my sin that i've that i've committed past present and even future was placed upon the shoulders of the lord jesus christ and he bore it in his body so that i don't have to bear it myself so that i can be forgiven past present and future so that my fallen nature my deadness my separation can be released and i can become a new creature in relationship in a loving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. but It comes by faith. We must make that choice. This morning, if you've never made that choice, I want to encourage you today to make that choice in your life. Whether you're in this room, whether you're joining us on Facebook Live, watching this in the future, maybe this coming week you pick this up and you're watching it for yourself, there's no greater decision in anyone's life than to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's no better life to live than the life that's lived for the glory of God through Jesus Christ right that's pathetic right all right let's wake y'all up this morning we got to get the coffee back here got to get the coffee back here help us <laughs> that's right here's what I want you to do the Lord's speaking in your life this morning I want you to respond we're gonna sing a hymn and or a song of some sort in just a moment I forgot what we're singing but it's a song of response we never said under the Word of God and not respond we always respond in one of two ways Father, I I agree with what you're saying about me and my life and what I need to do next, and I affirm that, and I'm moving into that, or I don't give a flip about that. That's really what we're saying when we we just check out. So how are we going to respond this morning? Do you need a relationship with Jesus Christ? Here's what you do. Father, I've sinned. I've fallen short. My sin separates me from you. But, Lord, you've done everything necessary to forgive my sins. I put my faith and trust in you. Forgive me and help me to live for you. Simple prayer like that. No magical words, nothing. Just a heart that says, I believe and I'm turning from my sin, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you need encouragement to to continue to, to live this life. Let me tell you this morning, it is worth it. Let's respond. Father, this morning we are so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful for the life that we have in Jesus that's made available through the gospel. God, I pray for us as believers today to be excited about our faith, to be passionate about our faith, to be just overwhelmed with your goodness and grace as we think about all that you're doing for us even now, but all that we're going to be able to see there at the end. God, what we've been faithing into is plain and real, that it's reality, that it's sight. God, I pray for those maybe in this room watching this online. We're not in relationship with you, but God, they didn't want to be. This morning, right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking into their life and, and helping them understand that there's something missing there. Oh, there may be religion, there may be church attendance, there may be activity, but there's nothing but spiritual death. The Holy Spirit is calling them to Jesus, calling them to new life. Father, I pray you give them the burden and the urgency to respond in faith, to turn from their sins reminded of those who responded to Peter in Acts 2 and they said, what shall we do? Response is faith and repentance. God, help us this morning. Speak into our lives. Help us to respond in faith and then speak into other people's lives even this week. We give you this time as we respond in faith. pray this in Jesus' name.